Moshe and the snare. What's the story? All right. That's the toughest part, you know. Remember on Sunday. It's hard to remember. They have to teach you other places. Do you, are you, do you ever do like Abraham, or are you doing like starting Moshe, and next year you're going to do someone else? It varies sometimes. We usually go straight with the book. So we. So that means you've done all already before. I've been teaching here for 35 years. So I've done pretty much everything. I mean, what? I mean, the narrative. Far behind. But okay. The story of Breshit. I mean, we. Not on the. I mean, I don't know. You never know. But I it's. Was, I, I always ask, I ask Rabbi Barara to just do Breshit. I want a year on just Breshit. Spend a life on Breshit, too, you know. I love Breshit. I mean, it's Could been. Do something like that? Possible. I've been doing the power shows. The power shows are shuffle with Breshit every week. But, uh, no, that's not the same thing. No, it's, it's not the same. Yeah, you're bringing the words and you're bringing in the. Do it there, too. But it's not. You're right. It's not. It's not the same thing. You're jumping every week to a different parasha. There you go, straight. Hopefully we're going to continue Moses and... Yeah, I think so. We haven't really gotten to the main, you know, we just the beginnings of his life. Now we want to get to the... I want to look at Moshe in terms of an actual what the text seems to say, because when it comes to Moshe, there are all kinds of other traditions about him, and he becomes almost superhuman, and the Chubbish doesn't present him that way. And he's very special. Or is this yeah. the last place? Uh, yeah, I think like, they all say. Like, she said next week is the last week. Next no, week is the, what is today's day? Today's the 11th. We have one yeah. more week, right? Okay. Next week, That's true. Okay, let's take a look at the, um, so mo- this is the story of the snap. We discussed it last week, the parallels between the snap on one hand and the story of uh, Shmuel, and the calling of Shmuel, the inauguration of Shmuel into prophecy and the parallels between them, and also the differences between them. Uh, the Book of Shmuel uses this particular story. It actually not only uses the story, but interprets it. It's a, interpreting the, the, the flickering fire as representing God's diminished presence. That's how it represents it. Okay, now let's get to the actual negotiation, one might say. Now let's, let's pick it up again with Pasuk Vah. God speaks to Moshe. First, don't get too close. This is on page 116, Pasuk number 6. Pasuk 5, uh, God, Moshe is instructed not to get too close. Take off your shoes. Don't get too, don't, you know, don't come here. Stay, keep your distance. And then in Pasuk 6, God begins to speak to Moshe, but the first thing God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So we understood that to mean, I am the God of your father, that is to say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Moshe's father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how we understood it. As opposed to saying, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, and I'm also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God is saying, no, I am the God of your father. And in case you're wondering who that might be, your father, because in the story of Moshe's birth, the father plays a minimal role. He doesn't watch over him. He doesn't looking out after him. He doesn't take him back. Moshe has like, a lot of women in his life, but he has no men in his life. So the point is, I am the God of your father. You have a father. Your father is Abram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. That's actually a very important point. We talked about that. In what sense is Moshe 
the child of Avram Yisroch and Yaakov, and we argue that there are two different senses in which Moshe is the son of Avram Yisroch and Yaakov. One is the very fact that God speaks to him. Because from the moment they left Egypt, Yaakov goes down to Mitzrayim, we never have a record of God ever speaking. It means to be in Egypt, it means to be in exile, it means a place where God doesn't talk. And now suddenly, God is talking to Moshe. Okay, it's a diminished fire, but God is still present. That's the point. And Moshe hides his face. Now we come to Pazuk Zion. Now we have the charge. Vayomer Hashem. God says, I have certainly seen the suffering of my people who are in Egypt. Uh, here they translate the plight. Let me make a small point unrelated to this, but related to the word Inui. Just an interesting point. I had a conversation last week with somebody about this. We read last week's Parsha, the story of Dina. The story of Dina. The story of Dina says that Shrem saw, takes Dina, sleeps with Dina, Vaya'aneha. What does Vaya'aneha mean? So he abuses her. So what does Inui mean? So actually a very interesting discussion. And someone mentioned to me that an article came out recently which made two claims. One of which I agree with and one of which I don't. The two claims are, first of all, that one claim is that um, Inui does not always mean what we call rape. That's not what, Inui is just, it, it can often mean that. That's how the Dina story is understood. But this article, it's written by someone in Shechter in Israel, named Joshua Culp, very, very good guy. So he points out that sometimes Inui, this is what I was told, I didn't actually see it, sometimes Inui does not mean rape. For example, for example, he gives the example, yes, on page 423, Inui. So there it says, the Torah there lists the various cases of rape, adultery, and all this kind of stuff. So in this particular case, on the bottom of 422, it's about a woman who's engaged to a man, and someone else sleeps with her. So it says, on top of page 423, So you kill them both. Take them out to the gate, and you stone both of them. The, the, the girl is guilty because she didn't cry out. What that presumably means is that it's consensual. She didn't complain. So we have to presume it's consensual. That's why she's killed. She's, she's betrothed to somebody else as the status of a married woman. So she's put to death. What about the man? What about the man? And the man on account that Enoch, he violated Enoch, Inui, the wife of his friend. So the point, and as I'm reading this, I realize you can read it differently. But here's what Culp assumes. He says, look, the woman's not, the woman's not killed. The woman is killed, says the Chumash, because she didn't cry out, which means that, that is, it is, it is uh, consensual. But if it's consensual, why does it call this act Inui? It's not abusing her. It's consensual. So from this he concludes that Inui does not necessarily mean something which is not consensual. It doesn't mean rape. It means an inappropriate sexual behavior or something like that. Now, 
before you make your comment, I would simply point out whether I think his point is well taken. I have to, have to agree with it for other reasons I'll get to. But the Pasuk itself, actually, does not have to be read that way. We all prefer to read it that way. Because the, the presumption that we're making is that the woman is, is put to death because she didn't cry out means that it is consensual. The fact of the matter is you don't have to read it that way. You could read it very differently. You could read it, it's not actually consensual, but she didn't make any attempt to stop it. She didn't cry out. In other words, not that it's consensual. So you could read it that way. If you read it that way, that undercuts his case, his point about, about Inui. However, his point is correct for a different reason, which I'll get to shortly. What do you want to say? He talked about this at West End Synagogue and Torah study Okay. And that very word became a whole thing. And this isn't what... Probably read the same article. Yeah. I don't know that that was incited. But one of the, uh, one of the people there said that in order for to rape, their hands had to be held down. Is that a phrase that's used? All right, whatever. That's, Let's leave that out. That comes under the general category of nonsense, actually. Actually, fine. Nonsense. No, but uh, the idea is that she's taken down a peg, that she's humiliated in a way. It's not. It's not that she was raped, but her okay. value decreased. Okay, that, that, that's what this guy's saying. He's saying yeah. that. In the case of Dina, it comes up in the case of Dina. What did yeah, he actually do in the case of Dina? That's the concept. Right. Yeah. Now, let me make two points about it. Why? Number one, why I think that's correct about Inui, and number two, why it's wrong about Dina. I think it's correct about Inui because we have another case where the word Inui appears and in, in actually in Sefer Breshit. Right there in the book of Genesis. And that is in the following story. Not in last week's parish, but the week before. There it says that Jacob is married to two wives or four wives, whatever. And the first one is Leah, and Leah has children. Her first child, she names Reuven, and she gives the reason why she calls her son Reuven. Kira Hashem Ba'anyi. God has seen my Inui, and now maybe my husband will, uh, will uh, love me. Now, Inui cannot be defined in that context as non-consensual. Let's start with this. She's actually married to the guy, and she's the first wife. So what does it mean to say Inui? It means, I would say, it's, well, it, is, it is suffering. And Inui can have, usually it's sexual though. Inui I think means something else in that story. It means, not that it's not consensual, but that it's there's something wrong with it. It's, it's something inappropriate. Because she's married to this guy, but in effect he's married to somebody else actually. I mean he's technically married to her, but the one he loves is the sister. So that, so she calls it Inui. So the, the, it's correct to say that Inui doesn't have only one definition. Inui can have a range of definitions. Something inappropriate about it. But, now coming to the case of Dina, I would say that in the case of Dina, Inui probably doesn't really mean that because the Torah says in that very Pasuk, he saw her and he, uh, and he took her and by Yishkav Ota, not Ima, by Yishkav Ota. It sounds like it's completely not consensual. Like all the kings, they, see what they, take, they take whatever they want. So in the case of in the case of Shem, he sees her and he takes her. And more than that, the story of Dina, which is a very interesting story, but the story of Dina, forget about Shimon and Levi for a second, let's talk about Shem. The story of Dina of Shem is the story where the sins of Canaan are actually realized. God said to Abraham, 
you won't possess the land for four generations. For the sin of the Amori is not yet complete. The story of Dina is introduced with the Pasuk by Yavo Yaakov Shalem Shechem. So the story of Dina is represented in the beginning, which is the first verse. He does what, what the Egyptians do. Kedan and Mitzrayim are brothers in the Chumash. He sees and he takes. He takes by force. He takes without consent. It's what, the, it's what Pharaoh does, what Abimelech wants to do. It's what Shechem does. It's what Bnei Elohim do. Now, the beauty of the story, if you want to call it beauty, is that in the very next Pasuk, the Torah goes out of its way to present Shechem in a essentially positive light. That's very interesting. So that part is true. The, the story is a very gray story. It's not black and white at all. But I do think the word Inui, in that, whatever Inui means, it's something more than just inappropriate. I think it's... That's my, anyway, coming back to our Pasuk, the first thing God says to Moshe, so two things are interesting. First of all, the Torah spoke about the people, God hearing the cries from the, from the slavery at the end of the second chapter, 116. But here, it picks up on the Pasuk, the last Pasuk of chapter 2, by Elohim and B'nai Israel, God saw and God knew. In, in Pasuk 24, it says God heard the groans. In Pasuk 25, it says God saw. So the Chumash says that the first thing God says to Moshe is, Ra'o ra'iti, I have seen, Oni Ami I have seen the Oni, the plight. And what's, what is interesting for our purposes is that it exactly parallels what Leah said about her first two children. Child number one, she said, Ruven, God has seen my, my Inui. Rashem be on ye. Pasuk number two, she said about Shimon, God has heard that I am hated. There's a difference between hearing and seeing. And the difference is that in the case of hearing, the person you are hearing is crying out. So we can be in, all of us have been in situations, I presume, where we feel bad. Something happens, we feel in distress, and we cry out. Scream out, cry out, talk up, whatever. That's one thing. But sometimes you're in a place where you don't even cry out. Maybe you feel, what's the point, you know? You're so, it's, so, it's so hopeless that you don't even say anything. And that's what Inu is about. That's, that's what it starts with. And that, God can't hear that, but God can see it. So that's how the Chumash begins. This is actually a very important pasuk. And several years ago, I realized something interesting about this verse actually very, very interesting and very instructive and very useful about this particular verse. And that is, the way the narratives work is one verse reminds, plays off another. So this part, this, this is, and typically in the great books, they don't choose trivialities. They choose important stories to tell their own story. Obviously, the story of Moses at the burning bush is an important story, self-evident, because it's the beginning of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The Exodus from Egypt begins right here, when God speaks to Moshe, instructs Moshe to go and save the people, take them out. Okay, Moshe resists, as we'll see, about a chapter and a half. But at the end of the day, he's going to go. And the first thing God said to Moshe is, I have seen the suffering of my people, says God. And then God continued, and Sakatab Shabbati Bibnei Nosav, I have heard their cries 
because of their taskmasters or their oppressors. And I know their pain. I feel their pain. That's what God said to Moshe. That's the, that's the first verse. Yes? So is that suffering the humiliation that Leah felt humiliated that her husband wanted to kill her? Is it that kind of suffering? So we don't think of one of the slaves. She says, God has seen that I am hated. Yeah. Well, God right. has seen right. that I'm hated. So in other words, the word can have many nuances. They're all negatives, though. Well, it has many, neg- many nuances. My point is that when it has a sexual, it doesn't always have sexual meaning. Sometimes right. it's the man. The Pasuk and Sefer Devarim says, God caused you to starve. And God caused you to be an Inui, suffer. God caused you suffering. How did God cause you suffering in the desert? You ate, you had to eat the man, which you were not familiar with, you didn't know, nor did your ancestors know of it. God gave you this new food, never heard of before, made you eat it for 40 years. The verse in Deuteronomy calls that Inui. Now, in other words, Inui, whether it's food, in other words, it's something very basic, basically. It's something very basic, which is being given to you in a very weird way, inappropriate way, and those kind of things. That's what Inui in the case of Leah is. Leah says, you know, God has seen my Inui, because the Inui is, from our perspective, not just humiliation, the Inui has to do with the way he treats her is totally inappropriate. I mean, he's treating her from her perspective. From Leah's perspective, when you read the Chumash, it's obvious. From Leah's perspective, what is obvious is, she says, you know, Let's say the story of the mandrakes. So Rachel says to Leah, give me some of those mandrakes. Ruth identifies the mandrakes. Mandrakes are a fertility pill, according to most of the farship. So she has no children. Give me that fertility pill. So what does Leah say to her? Hama'at kachtechet ishi puakachet gamadu da'ebani You took my husband. Isn't it bad enough you took, it's not enough you took my husband? Now you want to take the mandrakes of my son? It's actually very interesting for other reasons. But the point is, what do you mean you took my husband? The reader says, she, she didn't take your husband. You took her husband. He wanted to marry you, right? That's what, that, what do you mean? What does the way I say? You took my husband. She accuses the sister of, of stealing her husband. But we say, that, that's not true. Jacob was supposed to marry Rachel. Worked seven years for Rachel. Then, Leah is it deposed over there? Who took whose husband? Didn't Leah steal Rachel's husband? The answer is self-evident, actually, the Chumash. Not from Leah's perspective. It's obvious. We're assuming that Leah knows something about this. We're assuming Leah knows that she's supposed to marry Rachel, right? Or the, the various Midrashim, that Rachel and Leah, Rachel's helping Leah. That's all nice Midrash. But in the simple text, we have absolutely no reason to believe for one second that Leah has any clue and he's supposed to marry Rachel. Why, why would she know that? The father makes all the arrangements. father marries her off. father sets away one day. You're getting married next week. Who is he? Yeah, the guy's working here. Your cousin or whatever he is. That's obvious. So then, you know, just go to uh, Afghanistan. You'll find that's what it is. Same society, basically. But when he says Yaakov, we don't, in this house, we don't... He said that to Yaakov. Right. Yeah. So that's right. Somewhere... Jacob knows. Love one knows. Right? Who says the wives know? Let me tell you something, okay? 
But the gestures don't talk. What? The sisters don't talk. In the text, they don't talk. In Afghanistan? No. I know what the sisters do. In the text, they don't speak. We have no reason to assume this, by the way, at any level, that the marriage isn't simply something. And by the way, by virtue of right, as far as she's concerned, as, as Lovan said, in our town, this is the, 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 these are the rules. The older one is married first. That's the rule. It's not an odd rule. It makes total sense. Therefore, the older, you wait for the older one to get married first. From her perspective, it's totally kosher. Why would we assume otherwise? We don't, shouldn't assume. Look, you're assuming people know. Let me tell you something. Years ago, when I was, before I got married, remember going on a date. So after one second, it's a blind date. After one second, you realize this is not going to go anyplace, okay? We're stuck for five hours, you know what I mean? Anyway, what is? This is awful. That was terrible. Happened many times. Correct. Terrible, terrible business. Anyway, it was, so I got to make small talk. I say, what does your father do for, uh, for, for, this is like 19, what is it, in the 70s probably. So, what does your father do for a living? I have no idea, she says. This woman's about 28 years old at the time. I don't know. What, what, what she has no idea what he does. I'm not talking about, you know what I mean? We're talking about Brooklyn. This is in Brooklyn, actually. Yeah. She's, I said, I really don't know what he does for a living. And because that sounds crazy, no. No, because it's a tradi- right? some kind of a family where it's none of their business what he does. He makes a living, does stuff together. He gets up every morning, travels someplace or other, he comes back at night. What he does, it's not my business. That was the point. Well, why don't we assume that she knows? Let's don't assume anything of the sort. It's obvious she doesn't know. She says straight up, look, she says, uh, the point is from her perspective, that's, that's the Inuit. The Inuit is totally inappropriate. I'm married to somebody, and a couple of weeks later, he's marrying somebody else. That's, and not only that, I know he actually loves the other one, doesn't love me. That's the Inuit. You know, we're coming back to our Pasuk, though. So this is a interesting possible because it's the first thing God actually says to Moshe about the plan. The plan is, I've seen the suffering, I've heard this, this, the, the, the pain, feel the pain, hear the cries. Pasuk number eight, I will go down to this God to save them from Egypt and to bring them up from that land. And then Eretz Tovar to a good and broad land, Tovar Chavaz, Vatchavazvash, milk and honey, Place of the Kanani. That's right. That's my plan, says God. And in verse number nine, the Yatar now. He needs Sakat And now, means right now, the cries are coming to me. And I, I see the Lachat, the oppression, or the uh, confinement, one might say. The narrowness, the narrow way in which Egypt is oppressing them. And now, Lacha, go. Go and I will send you to Pharaoh. And I will take my people out of Egypt. So that's, it's very clear. God says, here's the, here's the deal. I am hearing, I'm seeing suffering, I'm hearing, I'm feeling. I know I want to go down to Egypt. I want to bring them out. I take them to go down and I want to bring them up to this particular place. And now I hear the cries. It means the time is now. I made... God doesn't mention the covenant, but it says, now is the time, Atah. I've seen it, it's a terrible shame. And in verse number nine, verse number 10, now go. So God says, this is, this is the moment that I've decided to save the people. And now, therefore, I have appointed you as my messenger, my shaliach, to go to Egypt and take the people out of Egypt. Right? So this is the game plan. The game plan is to 
take them out of Egypt, and eventually to bring them to, to the land, to a good and broad land with milk and honey. That's the plan. Now, when one is looking at, just one second, when one looks at the book of Exodus, when one looks at what happens, Moshe takes them out. God takes them out. Moshe is the one who's... And they cross the sea, and they go into the desert, and they eventually stand at Har Sinai. And then at the end of this book, they build a Mishkan. That's how the book of Exodus ends. The book of Exodus, of course, that's true of all the books of the Bible. We read it as one big book, five books of Moses, or four plus one, or whatever you read it. But each book also is discreet. Each book is a Chumash. Each book is its own story. In the book of Exodus, what happens is Moshe is summoned at the snap. He eventually agrees to go, takes them out, crosses the sea. He stands at Sinai, and the book ends with the, with, uh, the, with the Mishkan. The quarter of the book is about the Mishkan, at least. That's how the book ends. Now, what's interesting is, not surprisingly, this particular verse was picked up by somebody else and used for, for, for their own purposes. And the verse I'm referring to, when you see this, by the way, this opens up a million possibilities. At first I recognize this. It opens up, it answers a million problems with a particular book. The book, of course, is the book of Shmuel that we saw last week. Last week we focused on the burning bush, that's chapter 3. The, the little flickering fire of Shiloh, that's chapter 3, that plays off the snap. But in truth, there's something else which is not so easy to see. In fact, I've done a lot of work on the book of Shmuel. I haven't ever read a single person who saw this. But it actually, if you see this, it explains many things. And the little verse here is found in the first chapter of Shmuel. First chapter of Shmuel, we're all familiar with the story. It's Chana is going into the temple. It's on page 572. 572. Actually, I take that back. It's on 571 on the bottom. Everybody knows the story. Chana goes to the Shiloh with her husband, who brings a lot of sacrifices. He bows down, and Chana doesn't participate. But she is praying. She wants to have a child, so she prays. Her prayer actually consists of one verse. It's only one verse that describes Chana's prayer, which is found at the bottom of 571. She takes a vow. She took a vow when she said, Hashem Tzvah, Lord of hosts, If you will certainly see the suffering of your of your maid, your slave, female slave. That's how she begins. Remember me. You don't forget me. You're a slave. And you give your slave, herself, grant me a child. I will dedicate him to God all the days of his life. And no razor shall ever touch his head. That's what she says. So what's interesting is, that's her prayer. It's one verse. What is very instructive, though, is how she starts. Which is, That's how she begins. I mean, this opens up worlds, this, this verse, actually. If you have to take note of it, though. Is the first words out of Chana's mouth. And there aren't too many words afterwards. Which, of course, is virtually identical to what God said to Moshe at the snare. The first words out of God's mouth to Moshe about the mission is, I have certainly seen 
the suffering of my people in the land of Egypt. Now the question is, given the similarity between the two, uh, what, what might the book of Shmuel be getting at by having Chana say these words? What is Chana actually saying? So I may make a small suggestion about Chana saying, and I'll show you how it actually is very useful in terms of understanding the book, and it actually, I think, relates to one of the big mysteries about the book of Shmuel. And that is, Chana stands in the, in the temple. Chana stands before God and makes the following, I would say, audacious claim, which is this. I, here's a, a paraphrase. I stand in the temple today. Temple of Shiloh. We are told by the book of Shmuel that Shiloh was a place of utter corruption. In fact, in about one or two chapters later, God will destroy it. God hates Shiloh. God wants to kill the priests of Shiloh. That's what it says. I'm not making that up. God hates them. Because they're totally debased and corrupt. So Chana stands in this temple. Now, no one else seems to recognize that Shiloh is a problem. Her husband seems to love going there. Brings all kinds of sacrifices. It is the center. It's the center temple. Only Chana doesn't participate. She doesn't eat the sacrifice. She doesn't eat. She cries. And she's whispering this prayer. Yes? That's not because she's a woman. We know woman. But she's not participating in the prayer. Anymore. No, no, no. He gives, gives, he, gives the, he gives them portions, it says. He gives the wives portions. She doesn't eat her portion, that's all. She's too upset to eat. But at, at the end of the day, she's not participating. And she's praying. Now, what is she actually praying for? She prayed, give me a, give me a son, she says, and I, I will dedicate my son to God. Which I believe means, and I can't prove it now, but I'm quite sure this is right. She says, look, she says something like this. Your plan isn't really working, she says to God. It's a good idea. And I know you, took, you spoke to Moses in Egypt, and the idea was to take them out of Egypt and to bring them to a holy place. The land of Canaan is one place, but the end of the book of Exodus, read to the Mishkan. That's how the book of Exodus ends. It ends, it ends with the Mishkan. In fact, when, in this chapter, we'll get there hopefully today, God said to Moshe, this is the sign that I have sent you, someday you will serve God on, on, on this mountain. The commentaries are divided, what that means, you'll serve God on this mountain, but several of them suggest that it means you, you will build the Mishkan right here. You will serve God through, through, through the temple. So you're going to come back to this place, and someday you're going to build me a temple. So Hannah says, I'm standing in your temple. It's a joke. It's run by two corrupt priests. The old guy doesn't know what's flying altogether. And they're stealing from you, they're robbing the people, they're abusing the women. It's a travesty. This is your temple, it's a farce. And therefore, we have to start all over again. We could start the whole story over again, but this time, please, with all due respect, let me, uh, let me handle it this time. Because you don't seem to be doing a very good job. The Gemara speaks about, that's essentially what she says. The Gemara talks about Chana. It's interesting, when it talks about Chana, is one of the people, which is an expression in the Gemara for certain people who are very aggressive in speaking to God. Khan is one of them. Eliyahu was another one. Moshe was another one. She's in good company, you know. And they talk very audaciously. She says, look, this isn't working. And therefore, you, you give me my child. Give me a child, and we will do it right this time. Now, we say two interesting things about this. Um... Sometimes I say things I'm not sure they're right. You know what I mean? If I'm sure they're wrong, I don't say them. Sometimes you don't know. This particular thing I know is right. I'm, if, if I'm sure of anything in Tanakh, this is it. And the two interesting features of the story. 
One is, anybody that's ever studied the book of Shmuel knows that the character of Shmuel is based upon Moses. In fact, not only is the book of Shmuel make that point in space. That's not to say they're the same. In many ways they're opposites. But one is based on the other. In fact, we have already in the Psalms where Moses and Samuel are, 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 are compared. Moshe v'yaron b'ko'anav u'shmuel b'ko'rei shabo. It's one of the Psalms of Kabbalah Shabbat. Right? Kabbalah has a good nusach for it too. Right? Moshe v'yaron Right? The psalmist already compares them because the psalmist understands the obvious point. The character of Samuel is based on the character of Moses. What she's asking for essentially is the second Moses. And when you realize that, you study the book of Shmuel, you will see the constant allusions in the book to the exodus from Egypt. In fact, the story we read last week about the burning bush. I chose you in the land of Egypt, God says to Ailey. I chose you in the land of Egypt. Now, was it, here's what's really interesting about this. If this is correct, then you would expect the book to end. The appropriate ending of the book would be what? Would be the discovery or the building of a, of a new temple. Which, of course, in, the, in, in, our, in, the, in our Masoretic tradition, is exactly how the book does end. The book ends, the last chapter of the book of Samuel in the Jewish tradition, not the way the moderns read it, but the Jewish tradition ends with the story of the census. When David takes a census of the people and then is directed by God to build an altar in the threshing floor of Aravna, which of course reads Aron, in the threshing place of Mr. Ark, which becomes the site of the, uh, of the uh, temple. And now that, what's interesting is that that story about Aravna is... This is actually so instructive about the book. You see, the story of Aravna, if you know the book of Samuel, you really appreciate this. The story of Aravna, which is chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, the last chapter in our tradition. The next two chapters about the choosing of Shlomo and becoming king. But in our, the way our Tanakh breaks it up, that's in Malachim. Shmuel ends with David taking the census, finding the place for the ark, and bringing, building the altar. That particular chapter itself, chapter 24 of Samuel, is part of a, a kind of epilogue to the book of Shmuel. The last chapters, chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, form a kind of epilogue. So everybody assumes that because it forms an epilogue, fundamentally, if not inextricably bound up with the rest of the book. Yes, yeah, some suggest there are some links but fundamentally, you read it as a separate thing because it is separate. Because when you read the last four chapters of Samuel, you'll see it has a kind of internal structure, ABC, CBA structure. So therefore, because it has a separate structure, it's a kind of epilogue. We have this elsewhere too, an epilogue to a book. But that misses the point. That's actually incorrect. It is an epilogue. Is correct, but that is not in a very inter- inter- integrally way, integrally related to the book is not correct because that's the whole point of the book. The point of Chana's prayer is, if you give me, if you allow me, give me the child, I will train the child. And this child eventually will build you the, the, the appropriate temple, which is true. The child that she has is Samuel. Samuel anoints David. And David, at the end of the book, takes the ark eventually to Jerusalem. And within Jerusalem, 
he finds a very special place for the ark, which becomes the site of the temple. So that's the, that, that, and that's the last story in the book. So that's the structure of the book. What makes the book interesting, of course, is that in the hands of this particular writer, who was awesome, it's not so simple. For one thing, Samuel doesn't actually want to appoint the king. Let's start with that. And for a second thing, he probably can't stand David altogether. And that, that's clear. I mean, he's, he's, I mean he, he can't imagine this guy could be a king. He also, in anointing David, is, is, is completely out of the picture. Because unlike Saul, who shares the leadership with Samuel, David is a completely autonomous king. David doesn't consult his prophet before he does something. He doesn't consult anybody. Sometimes he gets in trouble. Another prophet comes afterwards. But anyway, my point is, another, a good example of where you have a, what I would call a, a foundational story. The story of the snare is a foundational story. It's a story which other stories play off. Not only in terms of prophets becoming in, inaugurated into their prophecy, but also even in terms of a story like Shmuel, where the, the character of Shmuel actually is predicated upon Moses. By the way, this is wholly my own invention. First of all, it's, it's obvious when you read it. But second of all, the, the, the Midrashim noticed it right away. In all kinds of interesting ways. That's not to say they're the same. Sometimes they are the opposite. But they are very similar in many respects. They're both prophets. They both have, I would say, they both create prophets. They both in, sort of install prophecy as a central institution within Israel. Um, they both have no direct successor. They have a disciple who succeeds them, but they have no... They, of course, in the case of Samuel, his disciple actually doesn't, does not succeed. His disciple is Saul. Does not succeed because Samuel actually makes it impossible for him to succeed. And of course, in the hands of this writer, it's constantly the unexpected. And this is not somebody who, who gives a hoot about being politically correct. There's a book, after all, in which one of the chapters, the hero, is none other than the Witch of Endor. The witch, the, the old, is the classic sin of the Bible, the Torah. Pick out one sin in the Bible, it's the old and the Yidoni, it's the ultimate idolatry. But in the hands of Sefer Shmuel, she's, she's the heroine of chapter 28. Everybody else doesn't look so good, I think even including God, but she, she comes out great. So the, the point of the fact, this writer is fearless and is willing to say virtually anything. And in, this, in the hands of this writer, the stories are Way, the way the stories get developed is very interesting. But, coming back to my point about the snare, this particular phrase, and when you begin, what's interesting is when you look at, this is an important point about studying Tanakh in general, that sometimes you notice something, you see a, a direct link between one verse and another. So two things are true. First of all, when you notice an obvious link between two stories, typically there are many, many other, other links as well. When you start looking for them, you find them. That's point number one. Point number two is, what's actually very important is to try to figure out what does it signify. There are many people who notice links between stories. There are a lot of people who do that. The question is, what is the interpretation? That, that's where it gets very interesting, because people can disagree about the interpretation. What do you want to say back there? I wanted to ask why, I, uh, in Parabet, first he says he hears and then he sees. And then here, in Suk 7, it says he sees and then he hears. Is there a reason? Is there a significance? There's always a reason. Let's start with that. I would say that in, in uh, 
first of all, it's a very good question, actually, why, why the order would be changed. The point that I was making is simply that what impels God to move in the story, what bothers God more than anything else, seems to be this, uh, this uh, Inui, thing that God is seeing, and maybe only God can see. See that some things are not, not easy to see. Some things are not easy to see. For example, the one who picks this up, of course, is the uh, Haggadah. Vayaris on Yenu. The Haggadah has a drush. The drush is always drush, but it's always getting at something. It's not just a game. It's trying to teach us something. I know it may be obvious to everybody in this room, but it's not obvious to the world. The drush is trying to get at something for us in the text. And second of all, so what is the, what is that going to say? Vayaris on Yenu is a precious derecheretz. Separation of husband and wife. The point is a very simple point. I mean, it's on many levels, but on the simplest level is there are things that you can't actually see. You have no idea. You meet people and you meet people. You have no idea about people's personal lives, for the most part. How do you know? What do we know? We make all kinds of assumptions that we don't know anything. But God is actually seeing. God sees things that no one else could see. And that's the point of Vayar. So the, the Vayar over here, I put it in terms of God has to see because no one's even talking about that. No, nobody talks about these things. Either because they're private or because what's the point of talk? Not going to matter. People all the time say, what's the point of complain? No, no, nobody's listening. So therefore you just keep it to yourself. Or you, or you just give up. So the Vayar is what, 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 what gets God moving over here is, God, is, the, is the Inui which, which God is seeing. So maybe you could, one, you could, you could say that, that, that actually Vayar should be first but the, but the Torah reserves Vayar to the end. Vayar Elohim Vayeda, God sees and God knows, that God knows in that context, I mean God knows it's time to act. Once God is seeing this, so the Torah delays with Vayar. Right? That's, that's possible. Maybe there are other reasons too. The question is a good one. So that, you know, that we can come up with different possible solutions to the problem. In any event, coming back to our text, God's word is clear. Now, go, I will send you to Pharaoh, and take out my people from Egypt. That's what God says to Moses. Moses doesn't have too much experience in this, you know what I mean? He's not like he's, you know, what's his school or anything like that. He's not a social worker. He has no degrees. He's a shepherd in Midian, having run away. But what God says to him, just go and do it. So Moshe says, Moshe Elohim, Interesting verse over here. There's a lot of parshanut on these psukim, by the way. In this class, we don't do too much parshanut. But it is a very interesting, not because it's not important, just because it's not what we do in this particular class. But, so what does Moshe say? Me anochi. Let's say the following. Who am I? Now the word anochi means I. But in biblical Hebrew, there are two words for I. One is the word Anochi, the other is Ani. Anochi typically is a kind of emphatic. I. Like, Anochi Asher Lokecha Asher Otsetiha Biyaret Mitzrayim. I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. Right? Therefore, I have no other God because I did it. Right? Or when, when, when Yitzchak asked Jacob, Who are you? Who are you, son? Anochi Esu Bichorecha. I am Esu your son. Which is very typical because. He isn't. Sometimes when something is not, he, he emphasizes, I'm the one who, who right? The Pesukim are great, actually. I'm the one. 
right? I did everything you told me to do. Because there's nobody told him to do exactly. So it's because of generalities. When you don't know, you, you know, that's how you talk. That's why Esav doesn't say Anochi. Ani Esav, Adi Bilchah, Bilchah, I'm Esav. Who am I? I'm Esav. Because he's, there's no need to emphasize. He is Esav. But when Jacob is lying about it, he says Anochi. Anochi. I'm, I'm the one. Over here, we have the Anochi. Me Anochi. Who am I? Right? So I would say it means this. Um, me Anochi means over here, I think. God had said in verse number 6, Anochi Elohei Avicha. I am the God of your father. That's the first words out of God's mouth, is Anochi. Correct? In verse number 6, as God starts to speak in verse 6, God said to... Uh, God said to uh, Moshe, Anochi, I am the God of you. Let me introduce myself. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses, Moses responds, and therefore go now and take them out of Egypt. So Moshe's answer is, I, I, I understand who you are. I got that. But I have a simple question. Me, Anochi, who am I? You're, you're great. I got that. What do you want from me? I'm, I'm, who am I? Me, Anochi. So it's a, one can say, it's, it's, we'll have to see, come back to this in a second. Who am I, he says, to go to Pharaoh? Who am I to take, to take Israel out of, out of Egypt? That's what, the te- that's what the words seem to say. Was the Ramban had a very interesting interpretation of this based on the, on the, on the continuation. But here's a, I want to raise a simple question about this Moshe's response over here, which is the following question. How do we understand the response? How do you evaluate his response? I think there are two ways to evaluate it. One is to see it as part of Moses, one of his main qualities, which is his humility, modesty. Look, he says, I'm not really up to this. I'm not up to this. You come to me to do it, but you can't really be, you can't be serious. Who am I? I'm a nobody. What is this? That the refusal, it has to do with a sense that he's, he's inadequate to the job. I'm going to talk to Pharaoh, speak to kings, take all people out of Egypt. Why do you think I can do such a thing? Me anochi. That's one way to read it. In that sense, it's very positive, actually. It's, the Torah likes that, that people are not, uh, you know, boastful, try to be honest with who you really are. That's a positive quality. That's one way to read it. But there's another way to read it, which is much more negative. And that is, it's not just about modesty, humility. It's about, actually, one might say, number one, he doesn't really want to do it. It's, try, it's the avoiding of responsibility. God calls you to do something. You do it. And more than that, I would say, it could equally be something even maybe more problematic, which is, he doesn't actually believe that God is capable of doing it. That's also possible. In other words, one general possibility is to read it positively, and the other is to read it negatively. I mean, yeah, we just came across last night, I was thinking about the following story. The story is, the story is that um, King Saul was appointed, uh, was crowned the king. Shmuel, actually, Shmuel is what his first job is to crown Saul as the king of Israel. The truth is, when you read those stories, there are three different coronation ceremonies of Saul. In each one of them, Shmuel makes all kinds of negative comments about the king. In any event, the second story is the following. The second story 
Samuel says to the people, he gathers all the people, says, you have all sins, you have rejected God, you have grievously sinned in requesting a king. Okay, now let's, now let's choose the king. So they choose by lot. They have a lottery in that story. And the lottery falls on the tribe of Benjamin, on the family of Saul, on Saul. He's chosen by lot. In the words of the text, he's caught by lot. He's caught. And they search for Saul. He's hiding among the vessels. He says, where is he? God says he's over there. So the question is, what does it mean Saul is hiding among the vessels? He's mechba. How do you read that actually? That Saul is hiding. So I would say, it's a sign that Saul, as he, say, as he says, I'm not, who am I to do this? He says, you make me the king of Israel, I come from a small tribe, my family is the least important family, why would you give me this great honor? Why, I don't deserve the honor. Saul is an example of a person who's very modest, he's a humble man, it's not, it's not, I'm a simple person. I mean, it says, I'm not worthy. That's one way to read it. And when you first encounter the story, that's I think most of us would read it that way. I think it's a very correct way to read it. But then later, you see that's chapter 10. Then you get to chapter 15. Chapter 15, you have the story of Amalek. I actually talked about this a lot and actually writing something up now about this and so, in that story, he's commanded to kill Amalek, the animals and everything, and for whatever, he doesn't do it. And, when he, and then Samuel says to him, why did you disobey God's word? So what does Saul say? I did obey, he says. I, I did do the right thing. The people sinned, the people took. We mean the people took, but you're the king of Israel. What are you talking people? Yes, we, we, okay, we took it to bring sacrifices. Took it to bring sacrifices. We destroy the other animals. Sacrifices. So Samuel says, "What is this? You know, you were given a mission. You re- you've rejected God. God rejects you as the king." Saul says, "I sinned. Right? I was afraid of the people, and I listened to their voice." It's not clear when you read the story. I listened to their voice. If that's a confession, or that's an excuse. I was afraid it was... When you read that story, actually, what comes to mind, I can't explain it fully, but it's a very important point about the story. The story that comes to mind, the story of Amalek, is one of the first stories of the Torah, the Garden of Eden. God said to Adam, what did you do? You took the thing you're not supposed to take. What is that about? To which his answer is, the woman you put by my side. Right? So God says to Adam, because you listened to her voice, you have to be punished. Even more interesting is that in the story of the garden, it's the snake. In the story of Saul, it's Amalek, which is the same thing. In the Torah, Amalek and the snake are interchangeable. So I was thinking, in reading that story, which has many interesting features to it, I began to think about that first story of Saul, when he's called and he's hiding. And we always read this, I think, it's a sign of his modesty, his humility, and all that. And it may be so when you first encounter it. But when you read the story later on, when you read chapter 15, when he takes up the spoils he shouldn't take, because they belong to God, they don't belong to him. And then he makes excuses about other people making him do it, and listening to their voice. And then you begin to wonder, when he was first hiding, 
Dechba in chapter 10 is that positive? Or maybe the idea of hiding is evading responsibility. And we have hiding, of course. What's the first time we have somebody hiding? It's in the Garden of Eden, of course, right? Because when Adam, after they eat of the fruit, Adam is hiding in, in the, in, within the trees, right? Right? So, where, where, where are you, right? Well, isn't that the language of the Chumash? He's hiding. Adam and his wife are hiding in those very trees. So it's a good, it's a good question over there with Saul. When you read that last story, you say, maybe the hiding in the beginning wasn't humility. Maybe the hiding was the evading of responsibility. You don't want to stand in the open. People will call upon you, so you'll hide, you stay in the shadows. And then coming back to Moshe, I think we can ask the very same question. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Who am I to take them out? Is it just humility? Or is there something about Moshe's response which is very problematic? In any event, we'll get to this later on. We know one thing, God gets angry at the end. So therefore, presumably, there's something about Moshe's response that God doesn't like. Can also be that uh, he doesn't think the people are worth it. And with the, the two that are fighting, and then someone goes to help, I don't, blah, 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 and he can't go back. Maybe he sees the people as unworthy. And That's right, that, maybe he does. That's right, that's certainly a possibility. Maybe he sees them as unworthy. Maybe he sees them as hating his guts. And well, how can I even talk to them? First of all, I interact with them, they set me off into exile. There are many possibilities. Maybe he says, I'm happy where I am. I have a very nice father-in-law who's a priest. We, you know, we talk about ethics and, we, and every day. And I have a family. I got a wife. I got a family. I got a job. You want me to drop everything? And I'm very happy where I am. I don't want to go back to that foreign place of Egypt. I was a stranger there. Now you want me to drop everything I have in my life, go back to save a people. My only experience with them is their trouble from beginning to end. And that's no doubt. That's was part of what's driving it. That's not what he actually explicitly says, though. Doesn't mean it's not true. Sometimes when people give you ten excuses, the real reason they never mention something else. In any event, what does it mean? Who am I to go to Pharaoh and take them out of Egypt? The Ramban had a very interesting explanation of this verse, different than the the Ramban understands it in the following way: Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Says the Ramban means, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and take them out? In other words. What guarantee do you have? I'm going to go to, what? I'm going to, go to Pharaoh and say, okay, take them out of Egypt. That is very unlikely. And the second point was, the Chiyotzi Epidei Mitzrayim, says the Ramban claims, does not refer to the Exodus. The Exodus is implied in the first statement, who, to go to Pharaoh means to get them out. But to take them out of Egypt, the Ramban claims, I'm not saying it's right, this is what the Ramban says, to take them out means to bring them on their journey and to bring them into the land. How do I know, says Moshe, what, I mean, I don't think I can do such a thing. You want me both to take them out of Egypt, go to Pharaoh, means permission to leave, and on top of that, to lead them on a journey through a desert to go to the, the land that you promised to give them, and milk and honey. Who, these are two tasks. I can't do either one of the tasks. And the reason the Ramban interprets that way, though it doesn't seem to be the meaning, plain meaning of the words, is because of the next verse. Verse number 12. Vayomer ki God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. So first of all, don't worry about dealing with Pharaoh. I will be with you. Rely on me. And this is the sign 
that I have sent you. When you take them out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. So the Ramban was very bothered by something in the, in the verse, which is an obvious problem. What does it mean to say there's a sign? The sign is, is later on. In other words, the, if you, when you read the plain text, right? It says, Moshe says, listen, uh, this is not a job I can do. How do. Who am I to do this, such a thing? Don't worry, Moshe, I'll be with you. I'll, be, I'll give you a sign you're going to succeed. You're going to serve God on this mountain someday. Well, that's a lovely sign. But I'm not at the mountain someday. I'm talking right now. I'm saying to you right now, how, how do I know I'm going to succeed? You're giving me a sign that someday I'll be back on this mountain. Okay, that's great. I appreciate the sign, but it doesn't answer my question. I'm saying that right now I'm unfit. What's your sign going to help me? The sign, doesn't, the sign should be before I do the thing, not after. That's why the Ramban interpreted the way he does, which is very clever, actually, you know? The Ramban is always clever. In this case, it doesn't sound feel right to me, though, but the Ramban said Moshe had two questions. Who am I to take them out? But then the second question is, who am I to take them out of Egypt? Which means to go on the journey. So God says, I'll answer you two questions. As far as who are you to take them out of Egypt, you don't have to do anything, just show up. Let me do all the work, you know? Just, just show up. Now, as far as your second question is concerned, maybe that's even the more difficult thing, to take them on their journey, there will be a sign. And before you go on the journey, there'll be a sign on this very mountain. And you will know at that point that you have the ability to guide them through the desert. And the sign will be coming back to this mountain, which is Harsinai or Chorev, and receiving the Torah with the lightning and the thunder and Matan Torah. That will be a sign, right? As, 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 as God said to Moses later in this very book, the people will see you at Sinai, right? People will see this revelation. They will have faith in you forever. So the Ramban's interpretation, you may like it, you may dislike it. It's pretty clever though, actually. So that's the Ramban. The Ramban says that the sign precedes the, the, what Moses is concerned about, which is not just going to Pharaoh, but what he's actually concerned about is which doesn't mean just to walk out of Egypt, but it means to take them on the path, on the journey. So how, why would they even think I could do such a thing? says, God, that, don't worry about that part of it. There'll be a sign in the future. On this very mountain, there'll be a sign. That's, that's, that's the Ramban. Rashi had another possibility, which I think is probably closer to the Pshat. And that is, Rashi understood, that they, let me just get back to the difficult, it's like Parshanut here. There's a difficulty in this particular verse, which the Bepharshim tried to resolve. The, the problem that bothers them, among others, is what about the sign? How could you have a sign after the fact? You're going to serve God on the mountain someday, that's very nice, but it doesn't help me now. So the Ramana is his answer. Rashi had a different approach. This one approach in Rashi is, and this is the sign, does that refer to what's happening later on? What God said to Moses was something else, which is, Moshe, first of all, I'm going to be with you, don't worry. But let me tell you something. Let me explain, right? Let me explain what you already have seen. Because there's been a sign already. Moses didn't see it as a sign, but it was a sign. It's called the burning bush. That's a sign. Something is burning and it doesn't go out. The fire doesn't go out. So God says to Moses, Moshe says, who am I to do all this stuff? He says, let me tell you something. 
I'm going to be with you, you'll do anything you want. But let me tell you something else about your mission. Right? You, you question, how can I take them out of Egypt? And I'm, I say to you, there's already been a sign that you can take them out of Egypt. What is the sign? The little burning bush that you saw a few verses earlier is a sign that someday you will serve God on this mountain because when they come back to the mountain, one of the things that is typical of Har Sinai, right? Especially in the, in the book of, in the version of Sefer Tzvarim, but even in the version in Shvot, in our book, the Har Sinai Bo'er Ba'esh, the mountain of Sinai was burning with fire. The imagery of the fire of Sinai, right? Which means God's presence. God is present in the fire. So God said to Moshe, you have a sign. And not only am I telling you I'm going to be with you, but I've given you a sign. What is the sign? The snare. So according to Rashi's interpretation, what God is doing in this verse is interpreting for us one of the meanings of the, of the, of the burning bush. The burning bush refers to God's presence, God's re- diminished revelation. But someday, it's a small fire right now. But someday it's going to be a great fire. That's, that's the sign. That you're going to come back and you're going to there's be this great revelation and everybody is going to realize that you are there, the leader and you are the prophet and they're going to follow you wherever you want to go. That's what God seems to... At the point of Rashi, that's what God is saying. According to the Rabban, it's not so. According to the Rabban, Moses had two very distinct questions. About the, the second being about the whole journey to the land, to the promised land. After all, the Rabban says, God does mention the promised land. God does mention the land of milk and honey and the good and broad land. So how, how, how do I get them there? That part don't worry about. That part will be aside later on. Yes? So, according to Rashi, you could, instead of saying the Zelda Ha'od, you could say the Hasnaot You could have said such a thing. And you're right, and Zelda Ha'od is actually, doesn't sound like Rashi. That part of it sounds more like this will be the sign. Rashi takes this thing itself, this thing that you have already seen, and I agree that it doesn't feel totally right. So Rashi has an advantage. Rashi makes sense in terms of, according to Rashi, Moshe wasn't asking so much about traveling to the land of Canaan. He said, how do I get him out? I go to Pharaoh. The simple reading of the text is, he says, look, i got two problems over here. One is i got to deal with Pharaoh. And the second is I gotta deal with my uh, with my own people. Now you have this all the time. You have it with, with Israel constantly. You want to make a deal with somebody. There are two issues. A, can you talk to him? Let's say you can talk to him. Okay, we had a deal, shake hands. Who says that the person you're talking to has any control of the people that he, that he pretends to be governing? Who says? You talk to him and two weeks later someone else is in power. That's the problem. That's what Moshe says. Moshe says, look, I got two issues over here. First of all, I'm going to go to Pharaoh. Why would he even speak to me? And in fact, the last thing I know about Pharaoh was to kill me. Believing that out. Let's say he doesn't want to kill me anymore. Well, I'm going to know. I'm going to walk into Pharaoh's office and make, and make demands. And go, what? I have no track record. I, have no, I'm not, I wasn't even appointed by the people. That's, that's, we'll get to this later on. Uh, discussion of Moses. We have to remember this. Moses is basically an outsider. It's like some... You know what it's like? It's like, it's like Joseph in the house of Potiphar. You have this very brilliant guy comes into to the house. Potiphar is his house. Potiphar is the guy, in his house he has a, a big jail. And the guy has vast power and vast you know, holdings, no doubt, fields and whatever. And he's got a whole thing. He's got about a whole t- thousand people working for him. You know what I mean? Suddenly this Jew comes from the outside and the 
after a very short amount of time, he's the chairman of the board. Who wants him? Everybody resents it. So Mrs. Potiphar says, look, this guy's mocking all of us, not just me. So the point is, Moses goes to Egypt, but the people already have leaders. We'll see this in the story. The, the Shodrim. The Shodrim are the leaders of the people. And in fact, not only are the leaders of the people, it turns out in chapter 5 that some of them are getting beaten up too because they are in charge of the Jews and answering to the Egyptians. It's like the Kapos or something. And they get beaten up. So it's nice for Moses to make his proclamations, you know what I mean? He's going to make his speeches. But meanwhile, the people were in the, in the trenches doing all the work. So th- that's what Moses is saying. And it's very true, basically, that Moses is actually resented in, this, in the, the story. Who, who asked you? And they say to him, he goes, talks to Pharaoh, it gets worse. People go to Moshe. Who asked you? Thanks for volunteering. We don't, we don't need your help. Because ever since you open your big mouth, things get a hundred times worse for us. And we're beaten up. You make the nice speeches. If your name gets in the paper. But meanwhile, we're suffering. Who, who wants it? So the point is, that's one thing. The people. But the second thing is, Pharaoh. I mean, why should Pharaoh... That's what Moshe actually is saying. Very nice of you going to be with me. But God is saying something else. I want you to go on faith. This was God's idea. It's true. I want you to go on faith. And Moshe can't seem to do that. That's the point of the story over here. Maybe later in his life he can. But here he can't do that. I'm, I'm not blaming him. I'm just saying that's what the Chumash seems to be saying. Fine. So God said to Moses, I'll be with you and there's a sign. Whether the sign, the sign he already saw or the sign is in the future. Moshe Elohim. This took a very interesting. says, if I go to the people and I will say to them that the God of your ancestors has spoken to me, and they will say to me, what is his name? What should I say to them? So that's actually a very interesting question. Most people wouldn't ask that question, what is your name? I would say, God, you know. But what is your name? says something about Moshe. says something about Moshe. The name, you have to remember one thing about the names. The names in the Chumash are not what we think of as names. We think a name is a name for somebody. You know what I mean? If you're Sephardic, you're named for somebody, you know who you're going to be named for. You know what I mean? It's already, it's not a question. That's the way it works. You're named for a living person and you know which one it's going to be and you have a name. That's, that's it. That's the, it's not too much machokas there, you know, it's, it's good, you, you know what your name's going to be. But, basically the name that we're given us, for the most part, is named after some, has nothing to do with us. I mean, it may be an aspiration, you want to be like so-and-so or whatever, but it's, in a way it's, sort of, it's accidental. But in the Chumash, that's not the case. In the Sefer Breshit, what your name is, is actually who you are. And the, the classic example of that, the best example, is last week's Parsha, Yaakov and Yisrael. He becomes Israel through his struggles. He What's interesting about that particular story of Jacob wrestling with the angel and he gets a new name is that in that story itself if you remember Jacob asked this Ish, what is your name? Jacob said to this mysterious person, what is your name? He said to him, don't ask me my name. And Jacob understands, I have seen God face to face. In other words, the point is, what is your name? doesn't mean, what is your name? First of all, what kind of question is that anyway? What's this? My name is Jack. My name is, my name is Saul. My name is David. My name is Henry. Who cares? Why is that important? But what is your name means something different. 
what is your name means who actually are you because the name in the Bible often the Torah let's say the characters of the Torah the name is who you are Moshe means what? the one who draws out that's what he does he's Moshe he takes us out of Egypt Avram great father right? and Avram becomes Avram he becomes no, he starts as Avram he starts as Avram he becomes Avraham but the name Avram itself means exalted father of course at the time he's named Avram he has no children but that's not the point the point is the names are actually Moshe is saying what is your name he's not saying just what is your technical name so I'll give them a name he's saying something different who are you what they're going to ask me about you you had this revelation they're going to ask me says Moses what is his name what is his essence what should I say to them when, when you know when sometimes when someone says to you you know people are saying something what usually means is that they're saying something you know people, people, people are complaining means I'm complaining often but we don't want to say I don't want to say I'm complaining people are saying this you know sometimes people are saying usually two or three people but, but people, people are talking what is your name means it means Moshe wants to know forget the people Moshe we see in this chapter he has intellectual curiosity that's the step some people would say oh, it's burning it's interesting you walk away Moshe doesn't Moshe wants to examine it Moshe asks God we don't have this of other characters who actually are what is the definition what is your essential nature Jacob asked that question and he got an answer don't ask Moshe oh, I would say Jacob got the answer you actually cannot know that's a very important point in the story of Jacob you cannot know because in that story of Jacob becoming Israel crossing over becoming covenantal and all that but there's something else about the story he's also wounded at the same time he's very mortal that's the point mortal means physically mortal mortal means you can't know things there's some things you just can't know but Moshe is someone who has this deep desire to know so he says to God what is your name okay now what does God answer is the question that's verse 14 14 and 15 are very interesting Vayomer Elohim Moshe Eyeh asher eyeh Vayomer kol tomar l'vnei Yisrael Eyeh shlachani alechem God said to Moses Eyeh asher eyeh The JPS doesn't actually translate it Maybe on the bottom it says I am that I am or I am who I am or I will be what I will be etc it's a very strange answer I am what I am and then tell them I am sent you the question is it's actually a very good question when God said to Moses was God actually answering the question or was God evading you know in Jewish law Talmud speaks about this God has many names the names of God are actually something very very important in the Chumash Bible critics talk about the names of God all the time but they're important within the Halacha and for the Kabbalists they have the supreme significance they all are different elements aspects of God etc so it's like this here's the way it works God has many names the Talmud divides them up into three or four different categories one is the what's called Shema Meforash which is Yud Hei Vav Hei that's the great name of God okay that's one name fine Talmud even has variants of other even longer names of God but they're all variants of Yud Hei Vav Hei that's one then 
the Talmud speaks about Shiva Shemot Sheinam Nimchakim. There are seven names of God you're not permitted to, uh, to uh, erase. It's forbidden to erase God's name. And the Talmud says there are seven names of God that you're not allowed to erase. The Rambam codified this. Seven names of God you can't erase, but we have two manuscripts for the Rambam. It's interesting. What are the seven names? I'll get back to that in a second. Then there are other names of God, which are called Kinuyim. There are also names of God, but you can't erase them. Examples are Rachum, Chanun, Erechapayim, those kind of names. The difference is that Rachum and Chanun and these names are descriptions of God that don't have to be applied only, only, only to God. Someone else could be a Chanun, not only God. So it's not distinctively God. Therefore you can erase that, even though it's called a Kinui. It has certain halachic ramifications, but that, not for our purposes now. In any event, but then you have the seven names that cannot be erased. The two manuscripts. In one of the manuscripts of the Rambam that we have, one of the seven names is Eya Asher Eya. In another one of the manuscripts, it's not there. So actually, the two manuscripts are reflecting a very basic question about what God said to Moses, Eya Asher Eya. I am that I am, I will be that I will be. The Rambam, by the way, who of course is a great philosopher, talks a lot about Eya Asher Eya. He has a whole, maybe next week I'll talk about it. wild, but it's very interesting. I think it's the shot at all, but it's extremely interesting. It's are you talking about the Bible and the Palestinians? No, no, I'm talking about the Rambam's code. The Rambam wrote a code called Mishnah Torah. Yeah. In the code of the Rambam, we have different manuscripts. We have different variants, textual variants of the Rambam. In one of the variants, this is one of the seven names you can't erase. In the other variant, it's not. A different name is replaces it. In any event, there was, what is God saying to Moses? Is God actually saying something to Moses? You want to know my name? I'll give you a name. The one who will be what, 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 what I will be what I will be. Go tell the people, hey, yeah. Tell the people that I will be has sent you. And that, if that is actually a name, what God is saying perhaps is, it's what God said to Moses earlier, ki yeh Moses, Moses said, how can I do this? Ki yeh I will, I, I will be with you. That's a yeh. So, God, but, but, but what's your name? So, you could interpret two ways. What is the one that will be with you? That's, one, that's the one who will be in the, in the past, in the present, in the future. Then there's another way to ask, there's another thing, another way to, ask, to read it. Don't ask me too much about myself. I'm not going to tell you anything. Whatever I am, I am. Just say A is going with you. In other words, whatever I am, I am is a way of not answering the question. Don't ask me so many questions. I appreciate your curiosity. But I'm not interested in you knowing. You can't know me fully. Now later on, interesting, Moses, we'll get to this. This is one of the salient features of Moshe. This intellectual curiosity of the Rambam will say the great philosopher. Ramses was a philosopher. Later on, he asks a very similar question. Who are you? Who is going with me? And the God gives him a different answer. Hashem, Hashem, But, even in that story, God said to Moses, you can't see me and live. You can always see my back, you can't see my face. We'll get there. So there's something about this very interesting. In other words, what the Chumash seems to be suggesting, not surprisingly, is that the human being can fully understand God. If you fully could understand God, you'd be God. You can't. Only God could understand God fully. It's always the mystery. But having said there's a mystery, it doesn't mean you can't understand certain things about God. But you have to understand, important, that the things you can't know. 
It's probably part of the story of Jacob with this Ish. Don't ask me my name. Jacob understands from this, I've confronted God. But the name he never gets. Because the name would be the essence. The essence you can't know. That's the mystery. In any event, that's, that's the first thing God says. I have two answers for you. You could say the one, the, the one who will be, is that sounds like not much of an answer. The one is go, who, 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 is, who is sending me? The one, the one who's going to be there. Sending. That's not an answer. What is your name? But then God had a second answer in verse number 15. God said additionally to Moses, this is what you should say to, to Israel. Tell them, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob sent you. That's my name forever. This is how I am called for all eternity. So there, it's very interesting. Moshe said, what is your name? So God in verse 15 gives him an answer. The answer is, I am the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that answer carries with it something additional, which is, that's exactly what God said to Moshe himself. It's the first person. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what should I tell the people who sent me? Tell them the God of their father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it means that Moshe and the people are actually brothers. If, 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 if I, we have the same parents, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So then we're brothers. Brothers, sisters, whatever, yeah. Maybe the first time when he says, and yeah, Shek and, and, and yeah, he's telling Moshe, who's doubtful that he can do this, I am the all supreme being. Don't even think how you could understand, but I will be able to accomplish this. I think that's true. I think that's even implied the first time God speaks to Moshe. What God wants in the story, what's interesting about the story, I know I say interesting a lot, but it happens to be very interesting. Uh, what can I say? I find it very interesting to go that way. Is that God has a certain plan. But what, what, what's interesting is so God has a plan. God plans, his God's, what appears is God's plan seems to be go in faith, go in confidence and do my bidding, just obey whatever I tell you to do. No matter what happens, remember I'm with you at all times. And, and, you'll, and you'll be successful. That's, that was the plan. But what happens next in the story, or soon in the story, is that Moshe, for whatever reason, doesn't want, can't accept that. It does, it's not, so therefore, he asks in the story for, 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 for someone who's going to help him. Or something that's going to help him. He asks in the story for two different things that are going to help him. The two things are the following. The first thing he's going to ask for are these, uh, are these props. Right? People are not going to believe me, he says. They're not going to believe me. I'm going to go to them, I'll say, God spoke to me. Really, you know? not going to believe it. So therefore, how can I make them believe? So God gives them signs. The staff turns into a snake. We'll talk about that. But the, that was Moses' you know, lack of confidence. And the second question was, second point was, but I can't talk. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a talker. God says to Moses, listen, don't worry about the talking. Who, who, who's the one who created speech in the first place? Is it not me? So now go. And I, I will be, I'll, I'll guide you what to say. I'll tell you what to say. Don't worry about it. Then what does Moses say next? Shlach na biyat 
said somebody else. But now the truth comes out. These are all excuses. God gets angry. Behold your brother Aaron, the Levite. He'll be happy. He's a very good talker, he says. I know, I, I know he can talk. He'll be happy to see you. Now, the point is, the point of the story, actually, and next week we'll deal with, hopefully finish it next week, but the point is very simple. God had intended to send Moses alone. That's clear. In this story over here, this reflects, I think, within, within the Torah, there are, strikes me there are different traditions about Aaron. That's what strikes me. In this story, it's clear that God doesn't want Aaron. God wants Moses. There's no mention of Aaron. Aaron only comes up in the story after Moses says, get somebody else. First he says, I can't speak. I'm not a big talker. I'm not a talker. So God, so Moses, so God says, listen, don't worry about the speech. I, I, I myself created speech. I will be with your mouth. I, I will help you speak. I'll, I'll, I'll put the ideas in your head. That's one thing. And then Moses says, okay, get somebody else. So God says, God gets angry. What? Your brother Aaron, he's a very good talker. Right? You'll tell him what to say. You'll be, he'll be your prophet. You'll tell him what to say. He'll speak for you. And I'm going to help you out too. God was angry. In other words, in this story, Aaron is only there. Let's say Moses had said, okay, I'll go. There's no mention of Aaron. Aaron only gets involved in the story when Moshe tells God, I, I can't do it. Correct? I think Hashem gets angry at him. Because I think this part is about convincing Moshe so I think this point is about convincing. And when he goes back, Moshe says, I can't speak. Hashem gets angry because they figured by now he's already convinced them. Could be. It's possible. But the fact, the fact of the matter is, I make a different point, which is that what ends up at the end of the story, I quote it, Moshe extracts from God two big concessions, which God didn't want to do. One concession is that he has these magic tricks. God had no interest in the magic tricks. God doesn't mention them. God says, go and speak and I will be with you. That's what God says. There's no conversation here. I've decided this is the time to do it. I've said to you to represent all my, all my interests. I hereby appoint you as my shaliach to represent my interests. At which point Moses starts saying, I can't do it. Okay, finally, listen. You can't do it. You can't do it. What's your name? And then God will give directions to Moses. We'll pick this up next week. And then Moses starts up with the signs. And what God says is, what angers God is, I wanted you to go with the pure faith, without magic signs, without staffs turning into snakes, without hands becoming leprous. I didn't want you to go as a, as a magician. I wanted you to go as, as just a man of faith. But you can't do that. And then the second thing is, he says, I can't do what he says. I can't just get somebody else. I'm not the right guy. At which point God is infuriated by this and says, take your brother Aaron. And the point I'm making is, when you read this particular story, not the rest of the Chumash, and even in Sefer Shemot, if you read the Bible, you will see that Aaron is represented in two, two, two radically different ways, even within Sefer Shemot. One is, sometimes it's clear that God sends Moses and Aaron to Egypt together. Even later on, who Moshe and Aaron, who Aaron and Moshe. 
There's no information in these places. Moshe of the first I mentioned earlier, Moshe of Yaron Bechoanov Ushemuel Bechorei Shemo. There's no sense in that verse or in many other places of the Bible that Aaron is an afterthought. No sense at all. They're a dynamic duo. They do to- they're totally different. They do different things. Each has his own strength. Two different kinds of leaders. That's fine. But in this particular story, you don't get that sense, nor in the story of the golden calf. You get a sense that Aaron is actually a real leader. Aaron is there just that Moses is gone to try to fill in, and it was a disaster beyond belief. That's the point. So we'll see next time with this story over here. My, here's my point about the negotiation. God only has one candidate. This is the point of the story. That's the point of the story. There's only one person who understands something very important. I was a stranger in the land of Egypt. The way the text works is, when you have only one candidate, okay, then you're in a bad place. There's not too much room for, uh, for negotiation. Because at the end of the day, you have to be, at the end, you gotta, you gotta deal with this person because it's the only person you can deal with. Therefore, that person is in a place to extract all kinds of, uh, concessions. And you can be, you can resent it all you want. But the way, in very human terms, it's presented that God has no choice. God resents it bitterly. But God has no choice and motion goes the way motion goes, which is as a magician to some extent. And with it, and with a, but what God is really saying is somebody else to Moshe. If I wanted a talker, would I choose you? I actually don't want a talker. That, that's, what, that's what God is saying. I don't want a politician. I want you with your stumbling speech. That, that's what I want. I don't care about the words. I don't want a fancy talker. That's what God is actually saying. We'll see this next week. Yeah, what do you want? Last word. Good. Not last word. No. Last word today. But, Where's the but, last word? Okay, Go ahead. No last word. Uh, he's coming from a culture who's brought up in the Pharaoh's palace. Naturally, he was going to, there are many gods. What's this god's name that's calling me? Who is this? And how am I going to tell these people who are also in a pagan culture that they should follow this unknown, unseen god? That's quite possible, right. He brings back, remember where you came from. You are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I agree with that. Maybe you forgot. I have to remind you. Right, they do seem to remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, yeah. they, they know something about their own history. Right. But you're probably correct. It's clear in the story that Moses doesn't feel he knows that much about this particular God, whether there are a lot of other gods. I mean, the, the man that he loves is the priest of Kohen, the Kohen Midian. Right. Now, it's true, he's, a, he's an ethical person. Right. So they have a lot in common. But it's not clear at all that Moshe knows too much about this particular God. Moshe knew something about God Winnie the device of the burning bush. It's clear that Moshe is a novice. That's, that's obvious. Right. He's never, it's like it says with Shmuel. He never heard God's name before. He never he didn't know. He thinks Ailey's calling him. So the story is... Yeah, we'll continue next week. Okay.